No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. Maybe the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome once again to Media and the End of the World. I'm Adam Kroom. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Ralph Bellavo. Ralph, how you doing? I'm good. I'm very excited about the fact that the uh, I was thinking about our intro as I listened to it because you did such a fine job with that intro, but that you know the, 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 the arc of history is bringing the kind of jokey parts of that intro on the real world we're in right. closer and closer <laughs> right. together as time passes. It's the beginning and the end. It is. Of, it's like the, you know, when it says that, you know, they wiped out our troops, I'm just thinking of like the media in their constant state of decimation, sure. which is going to be a subject we're going to talk about today. Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are happy to rep local uh, news and local organizations when we can. Uh, I was really disheartened to see an announcement. Like, I assume I read it yesterday. Maybe it was the day before, but in the last couple days, uh, there is a local publication uh, called Nondoc, nondoc.com, N-O-N-D-O-C.com. And you should absolutely have a look at it. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Particularly if you're interested in, in uh, Oklahoma, Oklahoma politics. Uh, it's ran by Trey Savage, Josh McBee, uh, both uh, whom are OU grads. They are. They are graduates of our program. And, and uh, uh, yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, of course, for those of you who aren't in the Oklahoma media environment, maybe a little word of explanation that um, in most places there's a diversity of voices in the media and there's a natural sense of adversity between the local media and the local government. And in Oklahoma, that's not, unfortunately, how most of it works. Hey, it ain't so. <laughs> there is, unfortunately, uh, all right, so I, I, I need to admit, I grew up in Chicago, which is a particularly uh, uh, adversarial town for lots of reasons, right? right? Because you, you, because you, you know, journalism was always having to provide a, a watchdog relationship on a government that you just knew was corrupt. I mean, it just, you know, um, but it's not like annoying corruption. It's just like the corruption that allows machine politics to work with all of its, you know, accompanying racism and all the other stuff that comes with it. But it was just sort of like what you grew up with and what you got used to. And, and then you knew that the media was keeping an eye on it and they were in competition with each other to try to be, you know, the first one to expose the corruption and that sort of thing. So that adversarial relationship is really, to my mind anyway, the ideal of journalism, that, you know, part of the responsibility of journalists is to, you know, take what's happening locally. And um, my favorite cliche about describing journalism (laughs) is that the chief uh, responsibility of journalism is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable, Mm. which I think is a really nice way of thinking about, you know, the the role journalism serves. And it does have then a built-in politics to it, which is that it's trying to to equalize relationships of power. Yeah. Ideally. Yeah. And you know, one one 
particular moment in time where I was incredibly appreciative for non-doc was during uh, the the teacher walkout, which took place last spring. Uh, a majority of Oklahoma public school teachers uh, walked the state capitol. I don't know if it's majority. Majority of schools got out. I don't know how many. Uh, you know what percentage walked the capitol itself. Um, but this this took place for two weeks, and the 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 normal six o'clock broadcast news story was always from outside the Capitol, you know, shots outside the Capitol. What's the story of the teachers? Well, what non-doc did, uh, oftentimes in conjunction with students at the University of Oklahoma was sort of getting the reactions, you know, from, from the state representatives themselves, you know, who are these people, uh, being able to interview them, particularly those, uh, who voted against the bill to increase teacher pay and getting sort of on the ground reporting done. And like, that was, that was the outlet for getting that type of information. You know, you weren't getting it from anywhere else because everyone else is covering the teacher side of things. So, um, you know, they, they did, they've done a lot of work to build relationships within uh, with inside that building that I think are really important, um, you know, for the, for the state, for the, for the health of the state <clears throat> and for uh, our continuing conversation. So. I think, yeah, and I think there's a, you know, there, there's a, a relationship between, so then the, the question becomes, of course, in the media world we're living in, we always need to, I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a person who's um, against the idea of bubbles, as long as you understand that a bubble is what you're in. Sure. So I've been listening, for example, I don't know if you listen regularly to Pod Save America. Pod Save America has an ideological, clear location in the political spectrum. And I know that that's, yeah. you know, that that's, that we're all talking from that perspective. Yeah. And one of the things that, of course, they talk about is, you know, how do you deal with people who are, you sort of got the people you completely disagree with, and then the people who you disagree with, but they really also disagree with the people you disagree with sure so what should be your relationship between the the sort of close enemies as it were yeah um, but there's all sorts of you know it's just gotten very complicated and so an organization like non-doc was really doing something that that what I was suggesting before a lot of journalism just doesn't do enough right right um, like talking about the the teacher strike from that perspective or you know kind of keeping an eye on what's going on otherwise in in uh, government in a state like Oklahoma yeah. And, and and this reminds me of the very first conversation that we had on this podcast, which, by the way, I don't, it never aired. It was sort of our our trial run, but we were talking about new models for... So how, there was a lot of crying, as I recall. <laughs> <laughs> this, I love you, man. No, I love you. I can't believe this is so bad. <laughs> oh, that kind of crying. Yeah, yeah. Well, multiple kinds of crying. There's just too much crying for it to be, you know, uh, listen-worthy. So. But we... we we started talking off about uh, a publication that, I mean, is still trying to get off the ground, which is called The Correspondent. Um, and it was, you know, trying to come up with a new model for how they were going to do journalism, uh, one that did not have to be driven uh, by advertisements or trying to, you know, write stuff for clicks, but could be done on a pure subscription model. Um, you know, and that one still really has not released um, on the on the model which they, they they still set out to do here we are a year later but you know the, the, this conversation comes back to non-doc is is the, the the reality is if you want this type of 
publication, you have to support it. You have to be a supporter of it in some some monetary sense to sort of keep the lights on and keep this work going. Yeah, I think they, they were <clears throat> saying that they basically had two revenue streams. They do some advertising. Um, and, you know, nondoc.com is the site. So by all means, have a look at it so you can kind of see what this kind of local coverage looks like. What you'll see when you go there right now is for sale. <laughs> because basically they're looking for somebody to, you know, ba- make make their what they're trying to do financially viable. Right. So, but they've got advertising, and then they've got a uh, um, a small number of people who support it through subscriptions. But I think part of what you're suggesting is that we need to really think in terms of when we're we're all used to this with public television and public radio, right? right? So we know how that routine works. And I'm an enormous supporter of public media. I think public media is an extremely important thing. I think it's very difficult to talk about in an American context because, again, our media is so driven by kind of private interests. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's part of what creates the situation where you've got a lot of local news organizations, particularly in Oklahoma City, who, in order to preserve their relationship, you know, essentially their argument for access, they play nice you know, with the government. And they do a lot of, you know, sort of typical crime reporting and um, and and they, you know, by and large, it's not shocking to realize they have a slightly to largely conservative agenda. Um, and they think that that is how they're responding to the state. Of course, in journalism, that shouldn't matter. But there we are. Yeah. <laughs> so so because they're playing nice, that means somebody else has to adopt the adversarial position. So who would do that? And, you know, like I was suggesting, normally, if it's if it isn't happening in the normal competitive media environment, then it's really alternative sources. Yeah. And non-doc is a really important alternative source. Now, next to it, I have to say, you know, my, my, my other favorite local news, quote unquote, thing is the Lost Ogle. Of course, yeah. Which would be, you know, so look at Nondoc, then look at Lost Ogle, and you'll essentially <laughs> see the range of adversarial information ranging from Nondoc's really serious and very well-executed journalism to the Lost Ogle's incredibly deep sarcasm uh, in terms of understanding how things work in the state. Yeah. Um, but uh, but so Nondoc has come to the conclusion that they can't really continue <laughs> with only the small amount of advertising revenue and small amount of subscriptions that they're getting. So they're trying to find a more viable model. And that's something that isn't just a problem for them. It's a problem for all of us. You know, that's and that's that's really that that is where our intro is just appropriate because our, you know, the possibility of these sorts of things are being decimated by the fact that the traditional business models that we think about just aren't there anymore. Yeah. You know? so, smaller. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, so check that out. Check out nondoc.com. Uh, Find a way to to lend support if at all possible. Yeah, and, and if you don't happen to be you know connected to this market, then whatever market or whatever area that you're in, you know, try to find the alternative journalistic sources, the people who are doing really really good work, but doing it sort of either in conjunction with a, a, a public entity like possibly public broadcasting or ProPublica or something like that, um, and try to make sure that you're you know that you're helping to enable that kind of um, work to continue because really, you know, it goes back to, I think I've mentioned this before, uh, David Simon, one of my favorite television people, the guy who created The Deuce and The Wire and Treme and, and a bunch of great television. He was originally a Baltimore Sun reporter. And the prediction he started making probably 10 years ago was uh, the, the, the fact that journalism is disappearing means that there is going to be a golden age of corruption. 
And guess what? <laughs> Here we are. You don't say. <laughs> Here we are in the golden age of corruption where we have, uh, you know, cabinet officers and, and people connected to the administration who are filing guilty pleas for felonious activity and all that sort of thing. And, you know, again, this is sort of like the national media is certainly in better shape, generally speaking, than local media. Local media, but local media is where, and that's what David Simon was talking about. He said that, you know, local corruption is really what you need to be worried about because then they can get away with all sorts of horrible things yeah. if one's not careful. Yeah. So support it. If you, Support your own if you're out of this market. Or support ours. There's nothing wrong with saving sure. <laughs> Oklahoma yeah. media. Right? No, no. It's, it's, so. it's part, of, part of the fabric of the country. That's right. That's right. Uh, and very, a very important part yeah. of it. Well, um, so Thanksgiving has ended. The tree's already gone up in our house. I don't know if that's something your family does, but our, our tree has already been built, uh, and uh, the lights have been hung. Do you do real or artificial? Oh, no. No way we do real. You you do real? We, we do. We do not. No. You do, yeah, we no. don't do real. No. I, uh, I I appreciate, you know, no. we already have enough fire hazards as it is with me living <laughs> within, the, within it. So, uh, Do you put candles, like burning candles on the tree? Oh, we don't have that, burning candles in our house anyway. Oh, okay, okay. So that well, that's that's probably safer than no. We've got <laughs> we have a little bit of a dilemma because we have a child who's off at college. Not a child anymore; she's an adult, but she's off at college, and she would like us to postpone acknowledging ah. Christmas until December twenty third. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little, back. yeah. So I'm kind of hoping she listens to this and hears that you know we are all Gives just mer- mercy to groaning you. <laughs> about you know having to delay because I think it's actually you know people in the neighborhood have started putting stuff up and I really like the way that that looks and feels. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So that's the idea. Have you uh, pulled out any holiday films yet? I I have a little, a little, and yeah. So. Do you um, have, do you have sort of a, a run up list that you know you have to get this in beginning of December and and by Christmas Eve you have to watch something? Well, or... the, the the one thing that I should mention right off the bat because it's just such a weird thing is um um the movie that begins like it's going to be a Christmas movie but it's actually not, which is I think Lethal Weapon, right? No. Isn't that <laughs> right? Because I think they do actually a Christmas song at the beginning and then there's snow and then uh, basically a woman jumps from the top of a building. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's what. So that's that's a different kind of holiday thing. But but um, it, it, people who may have listened to this podcast, if you happen to be new, then don't be shocked when I say this. But I am an enormous fan of bad media. Um, and I'll, let me explain just a little bit. If you get a chance, there is a uh, – and I'm also a horror person. That's We've talked about that before. There's a, um, a service, a um, streaming service called Shudder, S-H-U-D-D-E-R, Shudder. And they do uh, horror films and horror TV series and things like that. They have managed to bring back Joe Bob Briggs. Joe Bob Briggs basically comes into the media environment and is a – um, scary and bad film host. And he pops up basically every 15 years. He was originally a film critic in Texas. Uh, and he prided himself. He was, you know, basically the lost drive-in was kind of the framework that he was using. So he's a Texan. He's very funny. Um, he did a, a stint on Monster Vision on TNT, did another thing for another, tele- I think the movie channel for a while. So he's been doing this for a long time. Well, he's got a new gig going with Shutter, And the first one was a, a 24-hour marathon he did during the summer and which was great and featured 
really terrible films and some great films too it had david cronenberg's rabid which is an amazing film and but then it had tourist trap which is sometime we'll talk about tourist trap because it's just unbelievable so for thanksgiving he did a um uh, i forget what the title actually was but it was like dinners of death or something like that And it was a four film thing and the reason i mention it is because at the very very beginning of it he does a 10 minute lecture on what thanksgiving is all about and it's absolutely hilarious and he's what he's i should say what he's leading up to is screening what he thinks is the best movie ever made what do you think that would be oh i have no idea Texas Chainsaw Massacre, of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which he then admits, and I have to hats off to Joe Bob Briggs for being the real person that he is. Uh, he mentions at the very beginning of it that he wrote a 20,000 word piece for a newspaper in Texas, and uh, they have it behind a paywall, but if you want to read it, just drop him an email and he'll send it to you. I sent him an email, and he sent it to me. I That's got it awesome. yesterday morning, and uh, so I've got this massive piece. He says, you know, basically, some people know a lot about one thing, and some Sometimes maybe it's not necessarily a good thing to know a lot about, but he claims to know more about the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre than any other human being. And he thinks of it as a Thanksgiving-themed movie. Because the whole thing builds up, you know, it's it's about cannibalism and, you know, and there's a dinner scene toward the end of it and everything like that. So there's, a, I think, a reasonable justification. But he does this explanation at the beginning of Thanksgiving. And what he basically talks about is that it's the cycle of people trying to escape bigotry. Then they go somewhere and then they reinstitute bigotry on their own. <laughs> so you got people from the U.K. who go to Holland, basically. They become pilgrims. Um, then people there decide to start being bigoted against them so they decide to move to Plymouth Massachusetts and you know for freedom and everything like that and that's where the Thanksgiving thing happens but then within basically the way he puts it is that it takes two generations for somebody to go from being the victim of bigots to being bigots themselves so he kind of traces American history through this like line of bigotry like all of the Europeans moving kind of south until they get to Texas meanwhile you've got all of these kind of uh, a Catholic influenced people moving up from Mexico into the west and it's just it's just a brilliant thing it's like it's like 10 12 minutes long and it's right at the very beginning of the the texas chainsaw massacre episode so the, just wanted to use that as a kind of a setup for for holiday yeah, stuff yeah, I had no idea <laughs> <laughs> somehow you went you went reversal and and your holiday starts with uh a mashup between you know something that could be watched on halloween or thanksgiving well and that you mentioned that actually brings up one of my favorite <laughs> christmas movies which is nightmare before christmas yeah i was gonna ask you about that yeah, yeah. are yeah. you are you a fan i am a chance? fan yeah i yeah i just i think it's an amazing film yeah. It's just it, it lands solidly in both holidays. It's got this kind of like, uh, you know, Tim Burton always has this kind of sense of of kind of wonder at things. Right. You know, this way of looking at things. I don't know. Have you watched a lot of other Tim Burton stuff? Yeah. Yeah, I have. Um, yeah, fun fact, I worked a once upon a time, I worked a seasonal job where I started at the beginning of November and was immediately um, let go uh, the day after New Year's. Um, but I, I worked at the mall and I worked at Hot Topic. <laughs> and I mean, this what, was. What, no, so which phase of Hot Topic was this? Um, I mean, this was 15 years out after Nightmare Before Christmas came out. So right. we had, it, it, Hot Topic had moved on from like Gothware and Insane Clown Posse, you know. <laughs> Actually, I don't think they had completely moved on from Insane Clown Posse. I'm sure we still carried some ICP hoodies. Um, it was but, always interesting because the wall was also half like Christian metal bands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was like so weird. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, but we sold a ton of Nightmare Before Christmas stuff. You know? uh-huh. I, I, I said I worked at the beginning of November. I definitely worked earlier than that because I did work Halloween, too. Halloween was a big day. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I, I sold a lot of Nightmare Before Christmas as a seasonal worker at Hot Topic. Yeah, I, that, that's that's got to be a trivia question of mine. Like, later, like two truths and a lie. Like, no one's gonna ever believe I worked out. <laughs> did you ever? Did you ever tell people not to buy something because it was crap? I'm just curious if that ever. Um, I wasn't that much of a, like a music snob. You know, like I could. I you know, I I've I, I felt judged by the guy who checks me out at the record store before. <laughs> you know, and um, that's you don't want to be that guy. That's never been me. But the, yeah. the the main reason I did it was because I was playing in a band at the time whose our record was sold at regionally at certain hot topics and you could buy my record at the hot topic at the time that i was working there which is really cool if you walk walk into a hot topic now you will not find any physical music um they stopped selling cds years ago uh and then sort of we had the vinyl revival and they were selling vinyl and there was a lot of good vinyl there. They had, you know, Hot Topic exclusive releases of music. So it was a it was a great place to go find something you wouldn't find anywhere else. They don't even carry that anymore. So it, it's it they've moved sort of like um, how uh, if you were within this regional area, you you definitely saw Hastings, right? Like and and Hastings had this transition from uh, media store to more pop culture store. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the number one distributor of comic books in the nation when they closed down. And, uh, wow. they, you know, they sold a lot of, uh, uh, you know, pop culture trinkets and toys and collectibles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and Hot Topics almost made that full transition. They just, you know, are selling knickknacks and bobbleheads and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but, yeah. but I was there when they were still selling music. That's yeah. You know, I think one of the interesting things and this is like, you know, old people talking about people of different generations, but sort of the physicality of music you yeah. know, where where music actually exists um, and, you know, there's this ephemerality now to files, even Spotify, because I actually do consume a lot of Spotify and I like the the, the, the yeah. algorithms they use. I've mentioned that before. Um, but it really does change how you think about the materiality of totally. what you're looking at. Yeah. Um, so the last piece of vinyl I, I bought actually was, um, there's a band called Shearwater from Austin who, if you haven't heard them, you should listen to them because they're fantastic. They did uh, um, a, a vinyl pressing of a cover of David Bowie's Lodger. They just did huh. a cover of the whole album. Actually, um, in October of this year, they did a performance in New York where they did three shows that were entire Bowie albums. So they did Lodger, they did Low, and I think the third one was was it Heroes? No, I don't. I don't remember what the third one was. But they just did a show where they were just doing, you know, they were just being basically doing, I guess what you'd call kind of a, you know, a tribute nights to particular Bowie albums. But anyway, so that was the last piece of vinyl I bought. I actually haven't played it because I suck and I don't have my turntable sitting <laughs> in a usable place. In fact, I don't really have the kind of like ideal listening space I would yeah. love to have. Yeah. But. I uh, So I actually went to, it's it's a it's one of the few places that I want to go every Black Friday is to the record store um, because they have good deals. Mm-hmm. And because in, in Oklahoma, 
Um, there is a Christmas album or holiday album that comes out every year called Black Watch Christmas, and it is done in conjunction with. Um, it's sponsored by uh, Fowler Auto Group, Fowler VW, and Honda, and all those. Um, and uh, it's recorded at Black Watch Studios, which is a, a, a little studio here in Norman. You've probably never heard of, but has recorded like some incredible acts um, over time. Sufjan Stevens, Kelly Clarkson, like some some big people have. Uh, uh, done some work. Collective Soul, I believe, has done a record. Third Eye Blind. One of those. I, I, I got my '90s bands mixed up, but um, <laughs> one of them has done has, has done some recording at Blackwatch. But anyways, they what Fowler does, which I think is a, a really brilliant idea for sort of sponsoring local music, is they basically support the recording and release uh, of a a new record every year. Uh, you can stream and download it for free, but they basically find local artists to record a Christmas song. They press it uh, as a record, and they hand them out for free at every uh, at the two guest room lo- locations in Oklahoma. So the one in Oklahoma City and the one in Norman. So I've, I've already picked up my Volume Eight Black Watch Christmas album. You have all of them. I have all of oh them. Oh my god. I was missing awesome. a couple of them, yeah. and I, I happen to have a connection of someone who has, you know, an, uh, stockpiles and, and sent me a couple of them. Yeah. So I have I, I have completed the collection so far. So yeah, and it's a really really cool deal. There's a, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm from Chicago, and there's a, a radio station there called WXRT, and uh, they were always kind of the edgy station, edgy rock and roll music station, kind of alternative slash commercial. Um, although most of the people at it's kind of weird now because, you know, sort of like with the, 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 the Fowler, the guy at Fowler who's into rock and roll. It's yeah, like, you Jonathan know, Fowler. Right. Yeah. Older people into rock and roll. So yeah. they have a, you know, it's, a, it's not exactly the perspective that, you know, we have in our 20s when we kind of launch into it and everything. But they do this annual, they do an annual thing. And every Christmas, because of a very generous relative of mine, I get that year's WXRT oh, desk. Oh, how cool. And what they do at XRT, they do a lot of live concerts. And so they basically pull material off the live concerts. Nice. And so it's and so it's bands that are going through Chicago, so it's right. like a lot of notable stuff, and they do one of these every year. And there's some really amazing stuff in those collections. But I love that kind of record store, radio station, local, totally. local yeah. idea. Yeah. I think that's great. We've actually ventured pretty far away from the Christmas. holiday, <laughs> from the holidays. Uh, so so, but let's let's get back to that a little bit. Okay. Uh, so I'll. Uh, how about I give you some movies and you give me. Uh, your uh, you have to give a one sentence take, which would be really fun to watch <laughs> one, you even attempt one this. Sen- one word or one sentence? Uh, well, you, you one can, s- I'll give you a sentence because okay. I think one word's too, too little. Uh, it's a wonderful life. Uh, essential viewing, um, comma. <laughs> with a really interesting political history. Oh yeah, I like that. Okay, yeah. uh, miracle on Thirty Fourth Street. Several versions, comma. <laughs> I don't really care for any of them. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's like, uh, well, I'll t- I'll t- okay. all right. So, can I, can I just say a thing? Okay, sure. All right. This is a guy. The rule. It's this, <laughs> this is a footnote. Look at this is a footnote. There's, a, there's an author whose name is William Kotzwinkle. Okay. And he, his the closest he ever got to being, well, there are two points where he almost got really famous. One was when a friend of mine who was actually on the uh, Pulitzer uh, board was trying to get one of his novels nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, which it didn't because he couldn't talk the other people into it. But William Kotzwinkel is this amazing American um, 
fabulous author. I don't even know how to describe, and I, I'm fabulous, not mm. fabulous, but he's also a really good writer. Um, the, the other point where he got, almost got close to fame was when he did the novelization of E.T. and then did a sequel to that. So, But he's done a lot of other novels. He does some incredibly funny stuff about elephants and drunks and people who smoke too much dope and uh, 19th century people who build little mechanical devices. He's mm. done an amazing amount of really interesting he's got one book called swimmers in the secret sea which is about a dialogue between a father and the fetus of his child and it's like an interaction between it's just beautiful stuff that he does and um, so one year he did a book called christmas at fontaine's which is all about the Christmas at a big department store in an urban area. And I used to read it every year. I've actually missed a couple of years, but it's mm. a, it's a fan. But so when I think of Miracle on 34th Street, I think actually of Christmas at Fontaine's because it's, again, it's got this fabulous thing where the, the Santa is a drunk, right, who actually sobers up enough to go and be Santa. And then there ends up all these interactions between people in the department store. It's beautiful stuff. But anyway, are you a fan of, uh, did I just hurt your feelings? No, 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 no. Like? no. I, I, uh, I've I've seen a couple of versions. I have neutral feelings about both, so so no, no, nothing there. Uh, Babes in Toyland, which not the which one is that? Uh, the, the, I don't think I've ever seen that. Oh, you have? You've never seen the Laurel and Hardy Babes in Toyland? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That I have seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. That's that's a hilarious little piece. It there. is. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Um, how about the apartment? Is that does that fall under? Uh, this it, is the nineteen sixty Jack. According Lennon? to Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. Huh. yeah. Interesting. I haven't seen that in a million years, so I don't know that I could actually speak with any authority about that at all. Is that uh, a Billy Wilder film? I don't know. Huh. Uh, a Christmas Story. A Christmas Story. All right. So there's a character named Ralph in it. Mm. So I'm, I'm always troubled by uh, Ralphie is what they're called. Ralphie. And I've never, never wanted to be called Ralphie by anybody. Yeah. So that was always a troubling thing. Uh, but I'm a big Darren McGavin fan. Ah. And so when he gets obsessed with the leg yeah. lamp, that's, that's awesome. Uh, so my, my fun quick, I, I probably listened on the podcast last year. I don't know. Uh, but I watch this every Christmas Eve. This, this is the movie that I watch because, it, you know, it's it's ran for, what, 24 hours on oh, yeah. TNT <laughs> or TBS or something like that, you know. And so... Um, so when I, I, I wrap slash build whatever, you know, the big Christmas present is, I always quantify it and how many times it takes me to watch the, you know, how many Christmas stories I have to watch to complete the project. <laughs> um, and I believe, I want to say three is, you know, what, what has been the max. So uh-huh. uh, a Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown Christmas. Good standard um, I was just watching the uh, – there was a satire that was done of doing basically Peanuts as Riverdale. And so they did a, a satire of all the Peanuts characters dancing in this satire. And they were dancing exactly like they do in the, oh, that's awesome. in the, in, in the Peanuts, which is hilarious dancing. Gremlins. It's on the list. Gremlins is – Are you a Gremlins fan? Yeah. I mean – Would you it, consider it a holiday? Yeah, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a horror – a holiday yeah. horror film. This is from the Rotten Tomatoes. There's been actually an upsurge of interest in Krampus. I think we talked mm, about Krampus yeah. last year too, as yeah. I recall. So yeah, that's, that's uh, been I think kind that's of an all awesome from thing. this list. White Christmas. Are you into anything like that? What are, are missing? Anything? Muppets Christmas Carol. Yeah. What's your? Do you have it uh, outside of uh, Christmas Story? Do you have any other secret fetishized Christmas guilty pleasures? Um, maybe Home Alone. Maybe. 
uh-huh. would be the other one that you know i'm a i'm a that's sort of that's sort of my generation so yeah. uh either i mean both of those are considered christmas movies home alone uh or home alone 2 lost in new york uh-huh. so both came out during the holidays i, I can't remember if they were back-to-back years or not um if it was like 90 91 or 992 that would be interesting to know is is if if those were back to back christmas specials so what about a christmas carol does that ever hit your radar screen you know i um it's, i i haven't watched it in a while we were thinking about going there's a, a local uh, ou is actually doing it as a play this weekend or next weekend uh-huh. so i'm thinking about doing that but no i haven't i haven't I haven't watched it in a while yeah again now there's a there's an interesting <laughs> tradition in um in in british media that um the bbc used i don't know if they're going to do it again this year but they used to do a ghost story for christmas it was like one of the things they did regularly and i think it kind of came out of this idea that there was this kind of i'm sorry i keep on dragging things back to <laughs> ghosts and stuff no i'm not i'm not sorry at all um but, but they used to do and there's, there's actually a collection of them that are really good there are a lot of mr james stories that were adapted and, and things like that but i mean christmas carol is a ghost story right yeah I and mean, there's no doubt yeah and, um, i was going to mention one of my favorite guilty pleasures was uh in 1970 which was quite a few years ago, there was a musical version of it that was made and committed to film called Scrooge. So right. it wasn't called yeah. Christmas Carol. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah. I think it's absolutely hilarious yeah. um, because it's it's really kind of about the out of control of it all. The cast is great. It's got Albert Finney, Alec Guinness, Edith Evans, Kenneth Moore, uh, Lawrence Nason. It's really good. The songs are good. Um, it's just not, you know, it's sort of like liberating it from the sort of of the Alistair Sim black and white version that we were all faced with every year because it was circulating so widely. So, yeah, I think the version that I've watched the most is, uh, Scrooged. Oh yeah. With Bill Murray. Bill Murray. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great, great one. Bill Murray. There's, there's a documentary out about Bill Murray stories about, you know, and Bill Murray's in the documentary as well, yeah. but it's about Bill Murray stories because you know there's all these stories, there are. That, and yeah. they're great. They're like, yeah. like the, the, my favorite. The first one I ever heard was, you know, you were at a restaurant and and this guy walks up and, and grabs puts his the, hands over your eyes. <laughs> no, he, he grabbed one oh, of your no. French fries, dunks it in ketchup, eats it, and it's Bill Murray. That's and he hilarious. goes, nobody will believe you, yeah. and walks away. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard I've heard I've heard multiple versions of that. But like yeah. walking someone up, up on the street and putting their hands over their eyes, you know, and then turning around and saying it's Bill Murray and him yeah. saying no one ever believe you. And then I read an interview. I believe it was in Esquire years ago, but they were interviewing Bill Murray and they asked him, you know, you know, these are these are stories that come up. You know, does this happen? Uh, and I believe his response was like, I mean, it'd be crazy if it did. Right. Like, <laughs> yeah. But it's got to be. It's so. called yeah. The the film's called the Bill Murray stories. Life lessons learned. Or is this life lessons learned from a mythical man? Uh, yeah, I have to watch that. <laughs> and it's there's supposed to be some. It's it's got a uh, if insofar as Rotten Tomatoes means anything, it's got a ninety four percent. Well, there you go. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. And, and and one of my most stereotypical millennial qualities is that I'm a huge Wes Anderson fan. <laughs> uh, yeah. And thus, you know, I've uh, I've consumed a lot of Bill Murray. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Outside of traditional 
80s Bill Murray. Right. So. Finding SNL bits and yeah. the lounge singing Star Wars yeah. themes and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Well, we've got a, a few minutes left. I also wanted to ask you, how's your book coming? You've continued to been on sabbatical all oh, semester. Yeah, I have. Uh, been writing. You know, how's, how's, how's writing been? Well, I've been writing about horror media, as, as I've mentioned before, and it's going really well. I've been... Actually, there uh, is one chapter I should mention, uh, and there's two things that you could call it. I kind of jokingly call it Art That Kills. Have I, I don't know if we talked about this so. before. Um, but it's basically the history of people who are experiencing pieces of media that make them either crazy or kill people or whatever. So The Ring, for example, you uh, know, you listen to, you watch a videotape and then you get killed right. sometime after that. Um, and there's a whole history of this, of course, going all the way back to you know, kind of a classical culture with, you know, not looking at the Gorgon and the Medusa or you'll turn to stone mm-hmm. or Lot's wife looking back at the destruction of uh, Sodom and being turned into a pillar of salt. So there's there is this really kind of interesting tradition where, you know, and so the, the sort of like more fanciful name for it is the motif of harmful sensation. Right. So you see or experience something and it's really bad for you. Kind so of Pandora's box. Yeah. Idea, well, yeah. Like, yeah, of. look, but, the, but there's a lot. I mean, it's kind of been this this thing that's happened in our culture a few times. There's actually a new one. Part of the reason I'm mentioning it is I mentioned Shudder before. They have a series and I think it's called Dead Wax, which is about an album that when people listen to it, it really does all those things that people used to be scared of, right? right. The backmasking and the idea that would make you into a Satanist if you listen to the you know particular piece of rock and roll or something like that. So there's now a series that's about that. I haven't watched it yet. It just appeared this past week. but So I'm interested in, in watching that and folding it in. So in other things are going well. There's, you know, always more interesting things to talk about. Interesting question I think that we all face is, you know, why do we, and this is kind of a larger thing, why do we um, indulge in tragic, sad, or disturbing, disgusting stuff intentionally? And we all do it. Even people who aren't fans of horror stuff indulge in some version of that, right? They're going to watch a romantic comedy, and romantic comedies are by and large built around 85 minutes of two people not getting along, and then five (laughs) minutes of them figuring out how much they really do. So that's a lot of torture that you're putting yourself through, right? So there's just... And there's just a ton of it in our culture. Our culture is really interested right now in in all of the details of these things. And, you know, that's and there's been a lot of theories in literature, theories in, you know, why people go see disturbing films of one kind or another. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot of interesting things. I think that, again, it's one of those things where I think each of us has an individual answer. And then there are like kind of collective cultural answers, too, which are kind of both very interesting. Is me. there... Just in in your uh, experience, are there waves where it feels like horror becomes uh, more uh, out in front in pop culture, and then it sort of come it goes it relegates back to the back again, or gets relegated back to the back? You know, are, are there times, particularly when I, I mean this in, with respect to like large box office movies? You know, right. I, I feel like. Um, I'm trying to think of you know what are the what what what's the last like really large box office horror scary movie type film. You mean that like made a lot of money? Yeah, and probably I, Quiet Place. I think mm, would have been one where yeah. it didn't really cost a whole lot to make and it made a ton of money. Yeah. There was a point where it passed Get Out, which was really oh yeah. 
really kind of a significant thing. So, yeah. but it's interesting, you know, the, because everybody tries to rationalize what are the things. So, you know, the the big horror because the, you know, the term horror started being used attached to these films in the 1930s, and there was a big between 1930 and 1936, 37 or so. You know, there was there was a lot of horror being produced, particularly by Universal, and a lot of the rationalization that people have of it was that this was a response people had to really tough economic times to the depression right so that kind of like led to it there there you know there's so when it comes and goes it's interesting to try to you know psychoanalyze a culture and figure out you know why is it you know why why in the 1950s did it seem like there was an obsession with science fiction horror films that were about the negative effects of science sure um and and why was there why was was there a resurgence in interest in gothic horror in the 1960s basically um so yeah they come and go there's a lot and then there's a lot of writing that can happen now about uh people use terms like post horror which i think is kind of usually being written by people who are not horror people because yeah. <laughs> of course smart people still look down on horror right yeah. um, but but they see something they like like get out or quiet place or uh, hereditary or something like that and um, and then they want to try to rationalize how that could possibly fit into their fine tastes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so they come up with these like really bizarre theories that there's something anti-horror about it which it, of course it isn't but anyway yeah so yeah oh, cool. it, it's interesting how things come and go I wonder if there's going to be a resurgence of interest in westerns yeah, because I, I was actually teaching a class yesterday and I asked them and normally when I say Westerns, I get this kind of like dancing question marks look. And I got this recognition from people, oh. and a number of them mentioned the new Coen Brothers, that's that's on Netflix right now. Oh, I haven't seen that. Which is yeah, Buster Scruggs, which is actually six little films put <laughs> together. I haven't seen it yet myself, but I'm always interested in westerns because westerns are such an American genre. You know, they're such an right. important part of of American culture. And but when I said when 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 I didn't see the dancing question marks, I was like, well, so what westerns have you seen? And they were barking out titles of things going back thirty or forty years. So I think that that stuff has has actually had a little bit of a resurgence in a way. There's been more interest in it as a genre of late. And the Coen Brothers, of course, this isn't the first time. Depending on how you look at what they did, they did a version of True Grit, and and uh, arguably, uh, No Country for Old Men was a uh, 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 contemporary western, yeah, which is another kind of subgenre there. So, westerns may be back. I'd, I'd be for that. I think, I yeah. That. I think, yeah. I think there's there's a lot of interesting things there. Um, in fact, I was watching a you know how the, the a listicle video of films that were people found very upsetting, and it was all these you know martyrs and all these really kind of offensive horror films and, and things like that. And the last one they talked about was The Wild Bunch. Hmm. Right, the 1969 uh, film, which was enormously violent, I mean, for its time. And even now when you see it, like the, the sequences of violence, which are beautifully shot, are really kind of horrific at the same time. Um, and there was a, you know, it had been released with an R rating. He'd cut like 10 minutes out of it. So when they tried to do a DVD re-release, um, they put the 10 minutes back in and resubmitted it to get rated. <laughs> and they gave it an NC-17. Ah, impressive. <laughs> so, yeah. So it can be dragged backwards. Well, cool. Well, that's it for this week. Unless you got anything else, not really. Um, right. Just we'll be we will be back with a, a, our Christmas episode, which will be more specifically, I think, about 
the holiday season. Okay. This was more uh, the idea of like what you might want to put uh, between you Get and many. that. And right. actually, I think one of the things we should think about and talk about is Christmas music. Okay. Because Christmas music is a really interesting yeah. category of stuff. Yeah, uh, totally. So we'll talk about that next episode. All right. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you. Thank you.